You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I Am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. This episode is brought to you by Annie's Kit Clubs, delivering creativity right to your mailbox. With nearly 100 years of crafting experience, Annie's helps you try a new craft every month. Crochet or knit an afghan, build your fabric stash, or introduce your kids to crafting. In your kit, you'll receive all the special supplies and expert instructions to make something new every month. As artists, it's important to have a creative outlet and hobby outside of your work and practice, and Annie's can help you learn new skills like woodworking, jewelry making, knitting, or crochet. I learned to crochet last year because I needed a hobby. So I made my first blanket, and it was just a repeat of the same pattern, which was fun, but left me wanting more. So when I got my first Annie's kit, I was so excited to get started on the Moroccan Tile Crochet Afghan Club Kit. I chose this kit so I could make a beautiful blanket and learn new patterns and techniques along the way. I get to build crochet skills month by month while stitching beautiful tiles, which is perfect for advanced beginners, which is what I guess I am. Each kit includes all the yarn and patterns to crochet a new section of your afghan, which is complete after the 10th kit. Annie's also has helpful online video tutorials that walk you through every step of the way, which is my favorite way to learn, but also has paper patterns if that's your style. No matter your age, skill level, or crafting interest, Annie's has a kit club for you. Use our promo code BEYONDTHESTUDIO75 for 75% off your first month of your subscription to their kits at annieskitclubs.com. That's annieskitclubs.com. Thanks for listening, and now for the show. Alrighty. Hello. Uh, welcome back to Beyond the Studio. We're super excited to be sitting down with Christine Wang today. Um, Christine and I met briefly when I was working at California College of the Arts. I was uh, working in the career development office and Christine was teaching in the painting program and I don't actually remember how we got connected, but I just remember meeting with you and hearing that you had shared your Schedule C with your students in a studio course, which was amazing and just refreshing to hear that. 
And then about a year, maybe a year later, after I had already left CCA to pursue my own art practice, I um, got to reconnect with you or hear from you again when you were giving a talk at Minnesota Street Project, uh, which is an art space here in San Francisco, where you were sharing essentially the same thing, um, talking about your Schedule C, sharing the history of your tax returns, and just talking about your trajectory as an artist. And so I felt really lucky to get to hear firsthand that story um, and the way that you just shared about some of these things that can be really, I think, difficult and vulnerable to talk about in a way that was super candid to an audience of other artists and students. And so I think for actually a couple of years now, we've had you in mind and really wanted to get you on the podcast. So I'm super grateful we are finally able to set this up and excited to hear more about your own work and journey and secretly hoping that we might be able to bring in some of the topics that you've shared about really openly in other talks that you've given. So thanks, Christine, for doing this. We're excited to talk with you. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we just dive right into the heart of all these things, um, I wondered if we could just go back in time a little bit. And I'm curious, um, just to introduce a l little bit more about you and your work, if you would be open to sharing about your entryway into art or just how you came into uh, working in the arts as a career path, what were some of your early experiences that led you to this road? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Rockville, Maryland. Shout out to Rockville. <laughs> yeah, yay, Rockville. <laughs> and... Um, I went to Cooper Union for my undergrad, and what I had done in high school was, like, a lot of after-school art programs where it was, like, a lot of model painting and painting from life and landscape painting, plein air painting, and it would be, like, high school students who were really into art and then retirees, like, older Mm -hmm. ladies and we would all be painting together the same model yes. and it was really super fun and I loved loved painting from life and then I went to art school and they were like you can't this is this is bad painting <laughs> you know what I mean no. like they wouldn't they wouldn't say like painting from life is mm -hmm. bad they would just say it with their like looks or like they're like cold indifference oh my God. it was implied <laughs> especially I got to think at a yeah. school like Cooper Union which in my mind it was just ultra conceptual I remember there were some kids from my yeah. high school that applied to that um, school and it, it definitely I think amongst art schools is uh maybe less traditional than yeah. some mm. yeah they were not into it they were not they did not like my painting <laughs> So then I like was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm on an A. I'm gonna do this really, really well. So I like um, started painting abstract paintings and like doing performance art and video art and just like reading theory and doing all of the things that I thought I had to do. Well, I mean, it was, it's cool. It's, it's nice to have a interdisciplinary background. And, I, and a conceptual background. Like, I, I wanted that. And it helped me. So that's that's the early days. 
And I know you went on to get your MFA at UCLA. Um, I'm curious, did you go right from undergrad to graduate school? Um, were you applying to programs as a student or was there a gap of time in between where you were doing other things? Yeah, there was a gap. I What I did was I met some very, very nice artists at Skowhegan. And there was also a woman a very good friend who I met at Cooper Union and we all kind of banded together and rented out warehouse space in Bushwick and then built it out and ran studios and lived there illegally because it was a commercial lease and then we ran that studio space they, she, Caroline ran it for years. Our lease was five years with an eight-year option to renew. And we signed it in 2008, right before the financial crisis. Mm. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it was pretty, like, scary. But it really gave me a nice live-work situation for two years. I mean, it wasn't sustainable because it was super dirty <laughs> like, it's like not really good to live in your studio it's like not very healthy you, know? you can't live like that for um, the rest of your life but no no you cannot <laughs> you do not sleep in the same room that your oil paintings are drying yeah at, at least like you can do that for like five years <laughs> but after five years no <laughs> I think. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, do what I say, not what I do, right? <laughs> but it was really tough because it was a property management mm -hmm. job. You know, like it was a studio manager, property management job. And I had no idea how to track my time, how to value my time, how to price out a studio, how to advertise, like... At some point, we were getting 33 checks every wow. month to uh. like, because the space was 8,000 square feet, you know, and people left because they were, they felt like they were maybe exploited because I, I couldn't, I didn't have the money to hire contractors, you know, like me and Caroline, we, we were putting the sheetrock up ourselves and we were like spackling ourselves mm -hmm. and and then I went to grad school and poor Caroline, you know, I abandoned poor Caroline. <laughs> like I moved to the West Coast and then like Caroline had to run it and then she had to hire someone. And like, how do you hire someone who's also living there? So like, was the exchange done with like lesser rent or like a discount on the rent? Or was it like they paid the rent and then we paid them a sat like a hourly wage like it was so messy and you know what I mean it was like so messy but we were like so desperately poor because we were in our 20s you know mm -hmm. yeah I appreciate you sharing about some of the difficulties of that period because I think that and I don't know if this was just sort of my own perception within an art school environment, but there is this kind of romantic notion, I think, of 
a bunch of artists living in a warehouse together and <laughs> it feels like those communities exist in every city, you know, whether it is out of necessity really or mm-hmm. because um, because there is this kind of idea that I, to me, I mean, I came from a, a painting background as well and I felt like this yeah. sort of um, story around like mid-century artists, like all these, you know, abstract expressionist or surrealist painters living in New York together in like squalor, basically, but mm-hmm. making this incredible work yeah. was 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 still kind of uh, romanticized in a way. And I think the reality yeah. is much more difficult and complicated. And so I would think that there is maybe a community aspect to that that may be hard to repl- replicate in other places so I I am sort of curious about that or like the relationships that may have been built or fostered through it but um, like you said you were sort of put into this position of being a a landlord or property manager and having to learn on the on the fly or as you're going all of these um, really practical issues around sustaining and running a space (laughs) Yeah, Caroline Woolard was the good cop, and I was the sad cop. Like, Not the bad cop, the sad cop. Yeah, just like, so Caroline would be like, oh hey, you know, let's, it's time for you to pay your rent. And I'd be like, if you don't pay your rent, I can't pay my parents back because we loan, you know, they, they lent me, they lent us. Sixteen thousand dollars, and we gotta, we gotta pay them back. <laughs> it, was like, it was so awful. It was so awful, and oh, I have like yeah. money issues with like a huge, like capital M. You mm-hmm. know, like money, value, how I value my time, how I value my own artwork. All of it is is was like so so bad like totally addicted to vagueness and I realized and and there was community absolutely there was community you know we would have these nice dinners and we would share food and you know Caroline's basically like my sister for life Mm -hmm. she was my business partner but now thank god we can just be friends Mm -hmm. (laughs) we closed the business you know um and I think it you know, really influenced both of our art. I think it was politically important. I thought it was a lot about self-determination and uh, how to organize a group of people well. I'm not saying we did it well. I'm just saying that it was, like, a good start for me. Yeah. And in some ways, there's no substitute for kind of jumping in and learning through doing. I mean, you can... Yeah. you know, have mentors or training potentially on some aspects, but really just sort of diving in head first, which it sounds like you all did, renting a massive space and bringing together dozens of artists in order to create this hub to be able to live and make work in as, you know, fresh out of college, I think when there is so much uncertainty and it's such a, a period of questioning I think for a lot of artists is you know confronted with all of these realities post art school how are you going to continue making work how are you going to make a living I mean these are all of the questions that I know led us to eventually starting the podcast and that so many artists have and so I think 
being able to talk about what those years were like is always really fascinating to us because I do remember that period um, just being really open-ended. And I'm curious, so with the arrangement that you had, was it really just subsidizing the space? Like, were you sort of breaking even through this project? Or was this also a way to kind of sustain yourself during that period? I'm always curious, like, were people working other jobs? Was this sort of like how yeah. you were supporting your art making? Okay, so we can talk numbers. The space was around 8,000 square feet. And then we broke it up into studios. And we couldn't rent big studios. We could only rent, like, the studios got smaller and smaller because our our price point and our clientele were just really poor. Mm-hmm. You know, like, 200 bucks a month for a cubicle type thing. And that, so that was one side of the space. And then the other side of the space had studios that went up to the ceiling. They were live-work. We had access to a kitchen and a shower and a bathroom, a separate bathroom. And, like, I think my space, I... So Caroline and I formed an LLC, and she got 50%, and I got 50% of the LLC. The landlord signed the lease with the LLC so that we weren't personally liable. My parents were the guarantors of the lease. The lease at that time, so we signed in 2008, it was a dollar a square foot at that time. So then, you know, we had to make rent every month, Mm -hmm. and then... Oh, and to sign, you needed, we needed three months. That's the commercial lease, right? Like first, last, and deposit. So we needed $24,000 to just to sign the lease. So that was, we, we borrowed 16 from my parents. And then we took the initial deposits for the lease and for materials. And all of the labor, we didn't pay for any labor except for hooking up gas for the heating system so all of the labor was us we were like spackling and we were like how do you call it framing out the walls drywalls and and the people the very nice people that I met in Skowhegan they were like so Eli I met at Cooper Colin and Matt I met at Skowhegan and then there was another guy, Nate. And so there, there were these, like, men who knew how to do this work, mm-hmm. you know. And, we, and they taught me and Caroline how to do the work. But they did not want to be liable. So they, they didn't want to be on the lease with us. They didn't want to have the um, financial responsibility, you know. So that was the beginning, and we built it out, and then... And they told me, Colin told me, if I did it different, I would have built out our living section first and then built the the kind of, like, studio-only section. And also, we would have built everything up to the wall. But building up to the ceiling costs more money. It's more drywall, mm-hmm. you know? And actually hanging drywall that high is really hard and dangerous because drywall's, like, heavy and all that stuff. So that was, like, the first three months. It was hell. And then it started getting cold, so then we had to, like, worry about heating, and that was tough. And it was just, like, 
really, really tough. And then my studio space was, I don't know, like maybe 650 square feet. And I had a little loft and it was enough to make paintings and like sleep in the loft or whatever. And I paid 535, 535. And then my day job was doing Venetian plaster and like decorative painting in Manhattan. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and then um and then we would take everyone's rent, pay the landlord, pay our utilities, pay my parents back like I don't know. I think it was like about a thousand dollars a month, something like that. And then after two and a half years, we paid them back. It was also interest-free loan, you know, mm-hmm, which right. is really nice of them. Yeah, I appreciate you being so candid about the experience. And I promise we won't spend all our time talking about this one period in your life. But I do find it really fascinating, one, because it's just such an enormous undertaking for two, mm-hmm. you know, fresh graduates to decide that, you know, you all wanted to create this space well the the men were old enough like they were late 20s early 30s so they knew Mm. like they knew that like kind of the stability of a long-term lease like five years plus three years option they 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 kind of could because they were out in the world already like they knew that the pressure of um real estate in new york is such that like if you can get a longer lease you have an advantage Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I'm interested, um, before asking some more questions about your uh, decision to go on to graduate school, um, just to hear, I guess, if, uh, like, looking back, if there are any other major takeaways or learning experiences you had from that time, because I think that these communities really are so common, you know? I know there are spaces like that in Baltimore when we were a student. I know there are spaces like that in Oakland and San Francisco, and I think that, you know, we've even interviewed artists that have to, you know, varying degrees of of scale, like manage similar spaces. And I think that's something that has come up is just the just the logistical challenges of managing and running a space kind of layered in with trying to create some some type of community and you know, for artists too, like there there may be varying degrees of interest in um, wanting to to formalize that versus having it be something that is more nebulous. And we had, I'm, for some reason, I'm thinking back to our conversation with um, Katie Kennedy, Amanda, from Meow Wolf, which is an example mm-hmm. of a group that started out as a really sort of freeform collective and then, you know, did sort of end up formalizing and, and kind of scaling that into this experience and what is now this, you know, enormous enterprise. And so, I think that is kind of an exceptional case of a group of artists that wanted to take that, you know, experience of sort of living and working together and replicate or scale it into, you know, a kind of a larger business. But I'm, I am curious just in looking back, because I think clearly there is this uh, kind of a need for, for space, first of all. And, you know, it is something that artists tend to do uh, as far as banding together and, and trying to find creative ways, I think, to create studio or or living space for themselves and so just I'm I guess I'm thinking for any artists that are (laughs) considering going down that path if there's anything else that you would (laughs) want to share or that you learned through the experience I think if I if someone was like hey Christina I want to build out a space 
I would say, like, have an exit plan, you know? Like, what happens if the people that you work with don't want to work with you anymore? Like, how are you going to pay them out? How are you going to, like, separate with dignity? Like, when are you going to stop? You know, like, how, how can you stop without harming yourself or others in terms of like just a stress level you know I feel like that's such good advice because more often than not as artists we're taking on things that we have no experience in we have no idea what we're getting ourselves into and we may be getting ourselves into situations that we want to be able to get out of and setting ourselves up I feel like really regardless of whatever steps we're taking being aware that your goals, your plans, your career is likely to change over time and what you want out of it. it giving yourself the out sounds really, really wise. Yeah. Because, I mean, people were really happy and stayed and, like, felt really sad when it ended. But people also left, you know. Yeah, I'm curious, um, on that note, to hear more about your decision to move to the West Coast and go to graduate school. Um What were some of the things that motivated that or that led you to that decision? I talked to the people who I knew who were alumni of the UCLA program, and they had all gotten solo shows and representation, like, straight out of grad school, basically, or during graduate school. And the painting program at UCLA is three years, not two. So I just thought it was, like, maybe better for me career-wise. I knew that I got into UCLA and Yale, and Yale takes 20 students. At that time, it, it took 20 students a year. So it would paint, Yale painting was like 40 students total. It had this kind of like factory feeling to me, like like more competition, you know? Whereas, whereas UCLA had, takes four, four painting students a year. And the entire class is 12. And then the entire MFA program is 24. Oh, wow. So I thought that UCLA would give me just more individualized attention. Mm -hmm. And also I knew a lot of the East Coast, New York professors and artists. And I didn't know any Los Angeles artists. And also... um, Andrea Frazier was teaching at UCLA and I wanted to work with her. So that's why I picked UCLA. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm um, interested, did your experience then align with some of those expectations? Did it lead to either representation or more opportunities to exhibit your work? I think so. I think I am, I'm really lucky, you know, like these opportunities are I just feel so lucky. I was represented by Night Gallery before I graduated from UCLA. And then after I graduated from UCLA, Andrea Fraser introduced me to her German gallerist and now Christian Nagel and Saskia Draxler represent me in Europe. Andrea introduced me to Christian and now um, Nagel Draxler represent me. 
So it was really, it was really good for my career to go to UCLA. Yeah, I'm curious if you think that is sort of, does does the program facilitate that in the way of the kinds of people that would be, you know, coming in to give critiques or studio visits? Or did you feel like some of those connections were made more organically through things like, you know, faculty introducing you to certain people? Or um, I guess I'm just wondering like a little bit more about how, how some of those relationships started to develop. Okay. So when I applied to grad school, I knew that the the art world is so like snobby and crappy that basically like basically I needed all of the tools that I could get. You know, like if my parents have money, I'm going to use my parents' money. If <laughs> if I have like a really fancy degree, I'm going to get a really fancy degree. You know, like whatever fancy thing like I'm gonna try to get it and use it right so when I applied to graduate school I tried to apply to just the fanciest graduate schools at that time which was Columbia, Yale, UCLA, and USC. USC in 2010 had a really good reputation because it was free and then the USC MFA program started charging and then people resigned so basically the USC the prestige of a USC degree doesn't exist to the same degree that it did it from in 2010. I mean, it's still a really great program. And it's a really great school, but it's expensive from what I, yeah. So basically USC didn't give me an interview. Columbia didn't give, give me an interview and I got into UCLA and Yale. Like I understand that being an artist is, a crap shoot. <laughs> like I understand that yeah. it is like buying lotto tickets. Like mm-hmm. like every single painting I make is like a very very expensive time intensive lotto ticket that I have. <laughs> you know preach. I mean? Yeah. I don't know if it will sell. Like whatever. <laughs> I'm just buying these lotto tickets anyways. So when I go to school, the business, when I went to UCLA, the business aspects, the gallery stuff, it was all not in the open. It was pretty much hidden. Lots of rumor, lots of hearsay, lots of like, oh, Larry Pittman introduced Theodora Allen to Blum and Poe. Uh, or... Marina Pinsky got introduced to James Wellings, gallerist. So it was like, at UCLA, you could form relationships with faculty. And then after you graduated, it was kind of gauche to do the introduction or the recommendation before the student graduated. But like after the student graduated, like everything's, you know, they're not a student anymore. So you can just, that was like the feeling I got. It's interesting how so many of these things kind of start out as whispers or that it was, it was really veiled within the environment of being a graduate student. And I feel like that tracks with what we hear from other artists and just the sort of experience of being in the art world, that it is this kind of, um, just fosters this 
like feeling that it's this sort of exclusive club that there are certain things that you you know can or can't talk about or shouldn't talk about and that you kind of have to like I mean it would be great if we all had some sort of guide to take us through this because there is so much like you're saying that sort of these unspoken rules that you have to decipher for yourself oh. and I find it really interesting that when it. you came into graduate school it doesn't seem like you had any like uh, like you had a very realist perspective. You weren't coming in with any like illusions around what the art world was like, but you understood that, you know, these are things that, you know, maybe I need to, to do in order to like get to this next step or, you know, I need to, it, it seems like you, you kind of, you had an understanding of maybe what the rules were and how you were planning to, to navigate that. Um, I don't know if that's how you, how you felt at the time. Well, Cooper Union is a good school in the sense that the artists, like the students who get out, they're like super driven and ambitious. And they like, like I went to school with the Bruce High Quality Foundation students. So they were like at the Whitney Biennial and like doing stuff Mm -hmm. without a graduate degree. And, um, and then the people who were in the studio space that I organized with other people called we called it splinters and logs basically everyone in splinters and logs were like really into the social practice scene Mm -hmm. and they were like making a name for themselves through the social practice world but that couldn't help me with my painting Mm -hmm. like that like the social practice curators were not interested in making painting shows and like putting me into the painting shows so at some point I was like in splinters and logs like realizing my friends are all performance social practice artists they like my paintings but they can't help me right so I have to go I have to go somewhere else like I like them I like their work but they make social practice stuff and I make paintings and it it's just the the funding structure and the um platform and the legitimization structures are totally different right like social practice needs institutions and grant money and space and like audience and then paintings need like gallery support and collectors and stuff like that right it's almost like two different subsets of the art world and I think it sounds like you really recognized that you needed to develop a different context for your own work in order to find those support. It took me two years. <laughs> it took me two years to realize that. So I was not very <laughs> fast on the uptake. <laughs> uh-huh. So I'm interested how things started to shift for you then after graduate school, um, since we've talked about, you know, your experience after Cooper Union and what led you to come out to UCLA, how that did start to lead to some exhibition opportunities. And so when you graduated from UCLA, um, did you feel like things were starting to happen really quickly for you then, or what? What was that period like? No, no, it was it was hard, and um, it was hard because I took a teaching fellowship at VCU Cotter, so I was in Qatar teaching for nine months to try to get my teaching resume built up and thank god they put my application vcu has a 
teaching fellowship for people who just graduated from MFA, and it's called the Fountainhead. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. It's like a, yeah. So it's like it's pretty good deal. Like I don't know, fifteen thousand dollars for nine months, two classes, one class each semester, a studio space, an apartment, and a show, like a solo show at the end. This, this Fountainhead that sounds great. Yeah, this Fountainhead fellowship was like a really great thing. I don't know if they still do it. It rotates like. One year it's a painter, another year it's a sculptor, next, you know, it's like fiber art. So it's kind of like a really lucky thing to get it. And I tried to get it, but I didn't get it. And they put my, <laughs> they put my name in for the, there's like a Qatari version of the Fountainhead. And that's what I did get. So I went to Qatar. So I went to Qatar and tried to build up my teaching resume that way. And then went back to LA, did a solo show at Night Gallery with the work that I made in Cotter. And then, and that was 2014. And I got a horrible Times review, LA Times review, written by David Pagel. And it was just like a terrible, terrible review. I know, and I was so sad. (laughs) And then, yeah. And what was your, what were you feeling at that time? I'm curious. I mean, to have, not to like dig into those feelings too much, but to to have a big solo show. And um, I guess I'm asking now because you've, you've had so many more shows and you've exhibited your work extensively, but I would imagine at that time when you're sort of just like starting to develop traction that, um, you know, those, those types of reviews can feel really um important and so how were you able to move forward through that and oh my friends were so nice they were so nice to me they were like oh this guy sounds grumpy <laughs> yeah. you know, like don't worry about it like a bad review from a bad critic is like a good review <laughs> Any press is good press. They were like, they were like, my friends were just really nice to me. Mm -hmm. I got over it. Good. Yeah. I think sometimes it's helpful even just to hear that other artists go through that because it can feel so isolating when it happens to you and you're like, man, I just got like the worst feedback of my life. And it hurts because it was something over something so personal or I worked so hard on or whatever. But I think, I don't know, you can't force people to like your work. But I think over time you like learn to develop a, a confidence in your work where it's like that doesn't affect me as much. But it can still hurt. Yeah, that was fine. I got over it. I, I, yeah, I said to Sarah Gomez, I was like, I got this bad review in LA Times. He was like, who wrote it? I was like, David Pagel. He's like, good. I hate that guy. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, like, oh my God, thanks. Thank you so much. Sometimes that's all you need just to, yeah, flip things around and give perspective. It's amazing. (laughs) Oh, yes. So did that fellowship then lead into other teaching opportunities? 
Yes, yeah, I met Arnold Kemp, who is really great artist and educator, and he invited me to do the summer studio program at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. So I did that in 2016. And uh, 2015, I was like, like a guest artist. So I would like do like little studio visits for graduate students at I think like Claremont Graduate University or Art Center in Pasadena. Just little gigs like that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the role of teaching in your practice and kind of uh, how it may or may not make you think a little bit differently about your practice or things that you're seeing, you know, young students now, especially needing to know or curious about? Um, I think of teaching as an extension of my organizing. Like for me, it's about giving my students the best tools, the most transparency, like the best information, because I think it's a a political endeavor. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of my students are trans or they're people of color or they're first generation art school students Mm -hmm. or like they're immigrants. Like they're basically coming to the United States trying to stay, you know? And like the fact that so much of the art world is unspoken, the rules of the art world is unspoken. Like if I can share those rules with my students, like I think that that is a political, like an anti-racist, anti-classist mm-hmm. political action. Oh, yeah. It reminds me of this conversation we had. Um, Nicole and I hosted a panel at the ICASF last year, and one of our yeah. uh, panelists, Tammy Johnson, had said that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember her exact wording around it, but it was basically that, like, the importance of supporting artists it's a matter of national security and like we really have to view supporting artists individuals as supporting humans as being able to empower individuals to have say and autonomy in their own lives which is so often not the case and like whatever we can do to help equip each other and prepare each other and give each other access to things where it's like, Oh, I have this privilege. Let me help you get in here. Or you have that. Let me, let me get in there. And um, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. That's why I wanted to do this podcast. So, you know, like I'm very excited because I think you all are doing that work to, to make the art world more transparent. I think it's really, really important. Thank you. Yeah. I think we were really Um, I mean, I remember hearing your talk at Minnesota Street Project, um, again, and just being so inspired by the level of transparency, because I think that even within an art school environment, which revolves so much around education, there tends to be this air of mystery, or like you said, all of these unspoken rules. Um, Or I think even more often, like, you know, there's so many fantastic artists and, and teachers within these institutions, um, but maybe just not you know, sharing all these other aspects of their life, especially within a studio context. And I know from my own work in career development, 
I guess the observation that a lot of these topics are seen as sort of extracurricular or they happen in, in specific classes or specific times. And so what I was really, I think, especially drawn to about the work that you were doing is that you were including this in your studio courses, that you were having these conversations with your students um, without being asked to do it, essentially, you know, that this was something that you felt like was important and that you wanted to bring into, again, not just having these critiques and conversations about the work in a way that feels very insular, but just recognizing that, you know, these things are all interconnected and being able to, being willing to share, I think, um, those those vulnerable parts about how, how you are also personally building your life and your work as an artist outside of that art school environment. And I, I just think that's incredibly valuable for uh, not just students, but for any artist, um, because closing that knowledge gap, I think, is one of the most difficult things, uh, you know, leaving with this in- incredible background within art, but not necessarily knowing how to connect the dots or how to put the pieces together and to start building a life or being able to support themselves, which, as you said, is a really, um, it's a really a political action to think about how our, because the art world does have so much privilege in it, that if you're not um, entering into the world without this, with this kind of support system, then how do you navigate that? And how do you make decisions within a, a world or environment that is often very opaque and, uh, you know, built on relationships or built on these kind of like, I don't know, back door conversations that, you know, most people are not privy to. So um, all that to say, just again, the level of transparency that you brought um, and like bringing these things to the forefront to say like, here's how, you know, how this actually happened for me or like, here's what's on the resume. And then here was the reality of the experience of that. And I think those things are just enormously helpful for artists at any stage. So thank you for that. <laughs> Yay. Um, I feel like I have to like recap that lecture that I did at Minnesota Street Projects because it's like, or I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I mean, as much as you feel comfortable going into some of the details or even just a high level overview of some of the things that you shared, I think would would be really amazing to relay here um, because it was a while ago now so I, I even am forgetting some of the details um, but I remember yeah yeah and this as actually is really well timed because um, Amanda and I just did a conversation where we um, called uh, visualizing your finances as an artist where um, you know sort Ooh. of like early in the year and we were thinking about the things that we do to sit down and look at where our income streams are coming from like what were our studio expenses the last year and um, Amanda's made some really great uh, charts like visualizations of of her numbers over the years and that's Ooh. led to great insights and so um, so yeah I think that's the headspace that we've been in and we just um, released that episode yeah. recently but um, I remember you sharing some similar things, so I'm, I am curious to... Do you have the charts on your website? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Here, they are, actually. I can send a link in the chat. Oh, yeah, awesome. I would love to see that. Oh, visualizing your finances. Oh, you found it. Oh, I see it on your website. Oh, oh yes. great. Wow. Yes, listeners, you can go yeah. to our website. This is so cool. Our episode page. 
Yeah, we definitely recommend listeners go check it out. Um, but we started doing the charts um, after we had attended a Artist U like free post art school. How do you manage your life as an artist kind of class? And uh, we're both like in part of the curriculum. It's it has you make a pie chart about your income streams. And we both realized how helpful it was just to realize like, oh, even year to year, like my online store might be doing great this year, but maybe most of my money comes from the podcast the next year or whatever. And so much of an artist's career experience is this wild ebb and flow of various projects that, you know, you might have a year where you're killing it and you might have a year where you're making little to no money and we have to find ways to navigate these wild career trajectories that most like accountants don't really know how to handle or how to oh, deal no. with where they're yeah. like, what's your average monthly income? And it's like, I don't have one. It's like, well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's that's crazy. This is great. I also like that you have your net versus your gross. That was a recent inclusion because Well, just in conversations Nicole and I had, we were kind of realizing that, like, it's worth showing people how much I actually get to keep at the end of the day, because it's not much. And I think a lot of times, especially, like, artists that share their work online, it's really easy to kind of develop a completely unrealistic perspective of what that artist's life or reality looks like. And so, you know, whatever we can do to make it very clear that it's like, out of every dollar, I keep 30 cents. Just remember that when you I question my pricing. I think 30 cents is good. Yeah. I think 30 cents is really good now. Oh, yeah. This is my I most, like, it was my most profitable year. I was like, wow. Yeah. No, sometimes, like, I think my net, my goal for 2023 is to, like, net maybe, like, 12%. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, like, my mm-hmm. goal. Yeah, I think if people knew the real amount of studio overhead and expenses, it would be a little bit shocking. Oh, yeah. And then I think my net in 2021 was literally $845. Wow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know. And my gross was like 79K, like 79,000. Like that was my gross. And then my net. And then I just blew it all on studio expenses and taxes. Yeah. And taxes. Self-employment yes. tax. Which is 30%. Which is the other reason why I teach. Because the teaching is my day job. Like, I have my, my retirement funding is through my day job. And my health care is through my day job. And if I had to pay for all of that through my studio, then I would operate at a loss. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to pay for all of those things. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that as well because so much of uh the artist's experience is not knowing or you know you get out of school and you're like okay I'm a human now I guess I have to support my human needs on top of my artist needs and like how am I supposed to live beyond this practice and not just you know reinvest it into the practice and potentially retire or you know pay for medical needs potentially a family potentially property who knows (laughs) There's a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm curious some of the other um, takeaways from your your talk or things that you had wanted to share through it, because um, I remember some of the things that stood out to me, um, which I can also share, but I'm, I'm just would love to hear more about, I guess, what your intentions were, because I, I remember a, a lot of the artists in the audience were students, so I imagine they've um, heard similar things through your classes and... Um, so I'm just curious about some of those conversations. Okay, so the talk was for the SF Art Book Fair, and it was on July 17th, 2022. And um, I did it for Cassandra Press, that, and Cassandra Press, which is run by my very good friend, Candace Williams, who actually grew up in Baltimore. Her name's oh, Shadow. Yeah, so can Oh, Candace is a big deal. She, like went to she's in the Whitney she was in the Whitney Biennial last year and she is like killing it you know she's like totally killing it and um I think she's represented by Moran Moran she runs Cassandra Press which has these amazing readers about cannibalism white privilege um misogynoir all of these like amazing texts that Candace like collects. Like she she reads voraciously everything from like Wittgenstein to like the latest black Twitter thread. And then she'll like combine it into these amazing readers. But she let me do a she let me do a a zine, like an artist zine. And I like I did my best. <laughs> but maybe it wasn't like that great so we were like trying to sell my artist zine at the book fair and then she let me do a lecture and this lecture was basically me um trying to be like really transparent not just about class but also about race privilege like I'm Chinese American and I understand that my parents have like aligned themselves with a lot of like white supremacist structures not overtly but like just the fact that they own real estate and they use real estate as a form of like amassing and controlling wealth that goes hand in hand with settler colonialism right like that cannot operate without settler colonialism and then so so (laughs) it's like trying to make these connections so then my lecture was about sexual, like me trying to transition from sexual exhibitionism to financial exhibitionism, which seems like even edgier. Like it seems like easy to just kind of take all of your clothes off in a performance art piece nowadays. <laughs> but then, but it's actually hard to like tell everyone you're finances yeah yeah it's like (laughs) the most vulnerable form of exposure it's the most naked (laughs) yeah it's the most naked now now nowadays right so then I tried to like be the most naked I've ever been so that I talked about how my parents jobs like they're upper middle class my mom's a dentist my dad does research at Howard University so they're in the top income bracket, right? Then they then I went to Cooper Union, which was free. But my parents paid for all of 
my living expenses and all of my art supplies. Like I did not go to Cooper with any, I did not graduate from Cooper with any debt, you know, whereas some people did. Some people, Mm -hmm. they went to Cooper, tuition was free, but living in New York City is really expensive. So they had to Mm -hmm. borrow money, get student loans, and then they took some of their student loans and gave it to their parents. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like this, like mm-hmm. it was, it was like the same school, but very different experiences. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So like I had so much privilege just starting off, you know, in 2014. Okay. So when I moved to UCLA, when I moved to LA to go to UCLA, my parents bought a house and I stayed in the house and I rented out the rooms and then that was like so I didn't have to pay rent and I was also making money and then in 2014 I sold the house and my mom gave me all of the profits of the house and then in 2015 I bought a commercial building in LA for like $865,000 and my parents gave me the money for that And we had a deed of trust where instead of the bank acting as the mortgage, my parents were the mortgage. And that's, and I built that out and like rented it out as studios. But that was me by myself, whereas New York was with my friends. So it was really lonely actually in LA and there was no community. (laughs) Whereas in New York, there was like a community. And then... I became, so I became a landlord again. In 2017, I got the tenure track job. In 2016, I married a white man who also is in the tech industry. So he got a tech job in San Francisco and I got the tenure track teaching job at California College of Arts. And my parents, once again, helped us buy a condo. They gave us the down payment for the condo. And then, um, and so, like, down payment was from the condo. Mortgage is basically my, part of my husband's salary. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like swimming in money. <laughs> and then, and then I, in 2022, I got a job offer from another school and I renegotiated my salary to a new salary. And then in 2021, I sold the Los Angeles commercial property and then reinvested the profits into cryptocurrency and then lost a lot of money (laughs) in the crypto market. Oh no! (laughs) Which is really bad. But whatever. <laughs> I'm dealing with it. <laughs> or not. This and that, so that is was like the short financial. <laughs> yeah, so I did all that like financial history stuff. And then I in the lecture I talked about my taxes. And then and I went through like ten years of schedule c right like so for people who don't know like a schedule c is what you file when you have the um when you're a self-employed person and you get 1099 income you file a schedule c to tell the government or the irs like what all of your expenses are for that year 
so that instead of taking 30% of your 1099 income, the government says, oh, actually, you didn't make any money. Mm-hmm. So I did, I did my, like, I, I showed everyone my, like, Schedule C for, like, 10 years, basically 2010 to 2020. And from 2010 to 2017, it was all negative. My net was all Mm-hmm. Negative thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Yep. So like all during graduate school, all during Cotter, twenty fourteen, like that show with Night Gallery. It was all negative. <laughs> and then in twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, because I had sales in Germany, I hid my German sales money. I didn't get 1099 and I hid that income from the IRS, which is also very bad. We can cut this out. <laughs> but I talked to No, it's okay. I mean, I don't have I'm I don't do that anymore. You know, like I declare my income, all of my income, including the foreign sales. Yeah, so then the net was like the net in 2018 was probably I declared two thousand dollars, but it was probably more like twenty thousand, and that was that was twenty twenty eighteen, which is eight years after I graduated from UCLA. Yeah, I I just appreciate your transparency so much, and I'm remembering now from your talk what was also so unique is that you were drawing these parallels or these links between the. Your, your personal circumstances and the systemic and the larger context yeah. that we're all working in. And I thought that was a really, yeah. um, I just hadn't heard many or any artists really talk about, you know, their own situations in that way. And I think that that was something else that really stood out is looking at it through this lens of here's how this fits into this colonialist structure that we're working within. And, you know, here are the ways that I've personally either benefited from certain types of privilege or haven't. Yeah. And so I just, I, again, the the level of candor that you brought to that talk was just so amazing. And so I am I really appreciate you recounting some of that here. You're welcome. Thanks for coming <laughs> to my talk. Yeah, it was nice to course. see like a familiar face in the audience. <laughs> I was like, oh, Nicole came. That's nice. I mean, those are the kinds of talks that we live for. I think we're so... Uh, yeah, you know, we're so interested. Um, and also just I really admire other artists that are willing to pull the curtain back on that. And yeah, I remember when you shared uh, like some charts or shared this um, ebb and flow of your own history over the course of 10 years. Um, it was it was illuminating. And also, um, I, I feel like we had just talked about this too in our recent episode where my own experience was similar. Like most of the time since, and I don't have an MFA, but since graduating from undergrad, my studio practice has not been profitable. You know, I've had other sources of income, other day jobs, um, and it's only in the last two years that that balance has flipped. And even you were talking about the the gross versus net, Um, you know, essentially, like for me, the last two years, I've been supporting myself through like two big projects, basically, since I started working for myself. Um, One large commercial painting commission and then this year, a large public art project. Um, but that's also part of why my 
uh, gross and net ratios have flipped is because I was able to keep a lot more of that commercial commission. And with public art, my um, expenses have been much higher. And so just all of these things, I think, are, you know, it, it does, I think, help other artists to hear because it definitely hasn't been a linear trajectory. And there can be these sort of really... Uh, like extreme ebbs and flows. And so I think just like painting the reality of that version, whereas, you know, if you look at your your work or your career from another perspective, maybe, you know, somebody from the outside would see that you're, you're showing work consistently, you're working with all these galleries, like, you know, there are all these things happening. And so sometimes I think it can take a while for that to translate financially, or, you know, there are more like fluctuations oh, yeah. than people would realize. And so that's something I think that was, um, yeah, it just stood out. And I, I, it was helpful to hear, I think, um, as a fellow artist. Yeah. And I think what really helped me was I joined, I actually, I joined Debtors Anonymous and Business Debtors Anonymous. And they're like, definitely, it's 12-step. It's a 12-step program. And um, I have no credit card debt. But I definitely identify as someone who is addicted to vagueness and under-earning, like, and overworking. And so, like, I like not knowing where my money goes and where, like, where I spend it and, like, how much I get in. And then because I go to my DA meetings and my BDA meetings, I got all this help. You know, like, I, I joined in... February I joined in May 2018 and that was the first year my art business was profitable like I I swear to god I think it's like I think it's a miracle so I can go on and on about 12 step like I'm really into 12 step now (laughs) but like the fact that my studio is not a community it's not an investment it's not a whatever it's just my art studio like that feels like a miracle to me Mm. And I, I just renew, I just renewed the lease. I signed the lease last February, so that feels like, um, yeah, it just feels like recovery to have financial recovery, like to have an art studio that my art practice pays for. That is not where I live. It's not where I see my friends. It's not my day job. It's just my studio. Yeah. Yeah, that's really amazing. Yeah, it feels amazing to just rent a studio in a commercial building with no other artists around. And like, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that it's like, basically, it's an office. It's like a, it used to be an office. Yeah, It was a startup that failed. Well, I'm really even more excited to see your studio now because I think we have similar situations as far as being being lone yeah. artists in commercial buildings not too far from each other in San Yeah, it's great. I've this is the it's, best studio I've ever had, so I'm also very grateful. Yeah. I'm like this is the cleanest studio bathroom I've ever had. <laughs> Ooh, that makes a big difference. I have been in yeah. some horrible artist studio bathrooms. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I guess looking forward, is there anything that you're especially looking forward to or 
I mean, I feel like we could just continue talking to you for hours, but for the sake of the podcast recording, um, anything else that you would want to share? Last year, I was the first year that I grossed six figures. Yes. It felt like a huge achievement. Yes. So I I grossed, like, I think I grossed $103,000, which is amazing. And then my net was 13,000 I think ish I'm I'm going through my taxes stuff and yeah it feels so great and I'm so happy and also like I can't quit my day job right like I I grossed six figures and I still can't quit my day job (laughs) yeah did we mention we live in San Francisco (laughs) yeah um and that's just like the truth and then also like Last year, I went to the emergency room because I fell on my face and, like, they gave me a CT scan on my head and, like, an ultrasound on my eyeball because I I have a new floater, you know? And so they were like, let's make sure your retina is not detached. And that was in October, and it was, like, so stressful, but I have health insurance through California College of Arts. Yes, shout out for health insurance. yeah, so this crazy emergency room bill, which was fourteen thousand dollars, went down went down to eight hundred and and that was health insurance. You know, like that was the beauty of my like really fancy PPO health insurance that my school helps me pay for. So like those are the when I whenever I'm like, Oh, I don't wanna go to school, I'm like, health insurance. Like, my studio cannot support health insurance for me right now. So, like, I'm, and who knows, like, the gross, it'll, it can go up, it can go down, like, galleries close, like, I'm, there's no way I'm quitting my job. It's like, for me, it's like, it feels good because I find it meaningful and, you know, politically important, but also it's money. It's like good fucking Mm -hmm. money to yeah to have a tenure track teaching job yeah Yeah, it's like and we've talked about this in the past with other artists before but I mean those those day jobs can really give you a form of stability that enables you to reinvest in your studio practice in other ways and it you know different different jobs you know fill different types of needs and so I think like not not discounting those because they can be really really valuable um, or like offer you different things that support your practice at the end of the day. So we are full whole humans and we have different needs. And I think finding, you know, different ways to meet those is important. And I just, again, thank you so much for being so open and honest about all of these things. Um, and I, I feel like your students are just so lucky to have you to be willing to share, you know, all of these realities. Um, I just think it's so important and I hope other, other art teachers follow suit and are willing to do this kind of work because it's just so incredibly valuable for, for students especially, but really for any artist, I think, to um, just, you know, hear, hear these things and realize that they're not alone. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's really cool. Thank you for being our guest and for being so generous and candid. Yeah. Yeah.
Last question okay. before we go. Um, where can people find your work or learn more about you and what you're doing? Um, my website is www.christinetianwang.com. So that's my website. My two galleries that represent me are Night Gallery in Los Angeles and um, Noggle Draxler in Cologne, Berlin, and Munich. And I will be, they will be taking me to the Art Brussels Fair in April and Night Gallery will be taking me to the Independent Art Fair in May. In awesome. Very exciting. Great. Yay. Thanks, Christine. This has been so fun. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! looking at your studio backdrop now it's like so the light has been so nice and yeah you're getting it at the right time of day I'm not we're about to uh probably get into the golden hour soon although you might miss the best lighting between our interviews but ah uh. we'll see I do like uh this feels like a better setup than using my laptop somewhere so yeah I'm liking this right now Mm-hmm. We're doing great. Yeah, I feel like uh, this studio setup is working pretty well for me because the last time I recorded here, I hadn't like built these little coffee tables for myself. So I had like just a really just book stacked on top of each other, but it's feeling more comfortable Oh, yeah, the now. tables you made look so cute. Oh, thanks. DIY furniture. <laughs> Welcome back. back. <laughs> Thank you. Amanda and I are in sync.